We have over the last couple of weeks, I shared with you that as we began this study, that part of the difficulty in the Christian life is that because we don't understand and teach well the foundation of understanding that we need, when we have problems, the number one thing that we do is we go to God and say, God, what what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? We constantly ask him this do question. I have found that that's the last question God wants to answer. We pray over and over and over, Lord, show me what to do. I have found that that's just not a question, a prayer that God often answers. So when people come to me and say, I'm praying and God's not telling me anything, I tell them, well, change your question. Ask him something that he does want to answer. Now, why wouldn't he want to tell you what to do? Why is that kind of down the list of how he answers prayer? Why wouldn't he want you to know and just blatantly tell you what to do? Well, even as a parent, there were points in our life when Jay got old enough and the girls got old enough. You know, I remember this one in particular. Jay came to us one time and said, I'd like to go to the lake with the Daltons. And I realized in this moment that whether he went or he didn't go had little, very little bearing on me. So I realized that this was one of those moments where I probably didn't need to tell him what to do. So I said, Jay, whether you go or whether you don't go, it's, it's, it's not going to affect me. But let me just tell you that both sides, what's good about you going and what's good about you staying. And then you decide and from, from your mom, and now there will be no consequences. You need to just pick. What was I asking Jay to do? I was asking him to resolve that from the man that he was. Wanting him to reach inside and make a decision based on his identity, based on his values, based on what his heart said, do that. So why would God not want us to just sit and tell us what to do? It's because he wants us for those do things to be coming out of the identity that that we have found in him. He wants us to reach into the identity that in the assurances that he gave us about who we are and find answers to those questions without him just saying, this is what I want you to do. In John chapter 8, I believe, when they came to him, he says, you know, what must we do to do the works of God? Why wouldn't he tell them? Why didn't he say, well, go to school, go to the seminary, read your Bible every day, go to Sunday school, go to church, give your money, get involved in church, do all those things, and then you can do the works of God. Because it's not the truth. He says, believe. You want to know what to do? Then believe. They would have much rather had the list. They would have much rather he put five things down and said, if you go do these, then you can do the works of God. They would have got busy. And then they would have packaged this little program that says, if you want to do the great works of God, then buy my five-step program, and you'll know how to do it too. He knows us very well. We would have commercialized it and sold it. So he doesn't tell us what to do. He tells us who we are. And one of the reasons that we ask so much about, Lord, what do you want me to do, is because we don't have the foundation principles to draw from to answer those questions, so we find ourselves asking the same questions over and over. So we started two weeks ago teaching some of these foundation things again. And I started by giving you my view of creation, of a pre-existent earth, of God when the scripture says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what would you expect that earth to look like? Beautiful, perfect, peaceful. Anything that God created out of his nature would have had to look just like him. So how did it become dark and void and formless? Well, I teach that there was an event that brought that. That when Satan was cast to the ground, and I put it up here, E-R-T-Z, that cognate, earth, 
that he was cast to the earth. And I believe on the casting to the earth is when the darkness, the void, and the formlessness came. And so that when God says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth, that was God's move to reestablish and to redeem this world that had now been put under the dominion of Satan, and it was to redeem it back so that someday it could be handed to its rightful owner. And that's just what I teach. But the reason I teach it is because the way that God chose to fight Lucifer, the way that we understand it from the Scripture, he says, we fight, you and I fight against, not against flesh and blood, but against those powers and against those principalities. So we're, we are at war with the corrupt Lucifer who now functions under the name Satan. His beauty was corrupted and now it's evil. His name is no longer Lucifer, it's Satan. And we fight against that power and principality. What equips us to fight? It's not my physical body because I, I know the capability of this physical body and it's not going to fight much. I also know the instability of my mind and of my emotions to go, to, to go into that kind of war. So what equips us? And I drew the picture where this God, in, in the fullness of his power and of his justice, created a being that wasn't very powerful, wasn't particularly smart or particularly strong, but did create us in his image with the capacity in our spirit to hold the very spirit of God. So it's not my body that makes me capable. It's not my soul that makes me capable. It's my spirit, the indwelling reality of God in my spirit that prepares me to fight against those powers and principalities. And we can't win without it. So the next week, I talked to you, last week, last Sunday night, I talked to you about how to receive that indwelling spirit, about how to say yes to God and how to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit to function in us every day. Because these are foundation things, I need to make sure that the foundation is well set. So when I was looking at these principles, I thought, what do I need to teach them next? What do we need to be so absolutely certain of that we will never be confused conceptually about this? So this is a chart that I put together several years ago, and I've amended it as as I've grown. I've changed it a little bit. But I want to step through this. Our teaching tonight is going to come specifically from this page. Because I want us to know the difference. When it says in Genesis 1.26 that we were created in the image of God, what does that mean? The word God in there is the word Elohim, which means a God of several parts. So if I'm created in his image, then I'm also a person of several parts. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We know the parts of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know he has a tripartite God of three parts. If I'm made in his image, I shouldn't be shocked to, to believe that I am also a person of three parts. I'm not Randy the husband, Randy the father, Randy the son. Those are roles. That's like saying Jehovah Jireh, God the healer, or God of peace, Jehovah Shalom. That would be like saying that. But God the Father, I'm, I'm Randy the physical body. That's the one you can see. I'm Randy the soul and I'm Randy the spirit. Three distinct things. Never, never interchange them. In the great tragedy of teaching is when there's a failure to recognize the distinct difference between soul and spirit. And when pastors try to use those interchangeably, they are not interchangeable. That's what's created denominational differences. It's created denominational lines with even within own congregations. Differences and splits because of a lack of understanding between body, soul, and spirit. So what I'm going to cover tonight as clearly as I can is to lay out the foundation for that.
There's no great way to approach this. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down each column. Instead of going across, you can go across in your own mind. But I'm going to go down each column and we're going to build the story from left to right. So here's the scripture. We begin with Genesis 1.26. This says we're created in the image of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It's the one place in the scripture, very specifically, where it speaks of the salvation of the spirit and with a conjunction and, and the salvation of the soul and the salvation of the body. Clearly separated with the and, clearly creating the distinction between each of those. We also read in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate soul and spirit. You can't separate it without the, without the witness and the truth of the Holy Spirit because you'll, you'll kind of automatically blend them. Some of the teaching in, in Matthew chapter 13 in those parables is so hard to understand because we've misunderstood them because we don't make these kind of distinctions. Our spirit, as you, we go down the list, is what makes us God aware. It's having the ability to respond to God beyond those things felt and understood. Our spirit, because of sin, is what's dead. Adam and Eve still had a functioning body, they still had a functioning soul, but because of sin, the separation that was created between them and God was because their spirit was dead. That's what sin killed. But we also know by the, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that because of what Jesus has done, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, that sin has been dealt with so that spirit can come back to life. That which was once dead is alive again. So once my spirit is alive... I can have the kind of relationship with God who is spirit and truth. I can have a conversation with him. I can speak to him and I can hear him. And we can, we can have intimacy as, as God and as a, as a child because my spirit has been quickened and I can understand him. I can be fully God aware because my spirit is alive. My soul is what makes me aware of you. It's, it's how we exchange thoughts and how we exchange emotions. That happens within our soul. So it's having the ability to respond to others both mentally and emotionally. My body, we kind of need those because it would be kind of strange. It would be kind of hard to recognize you without it. You know, I'm not sure that I would be able to call your name if you didn't have a body. If you just had a spirit and a soul and you were moving around like that, it could get really confusing. So God was gracious enough to come up with enough strange looks for us that we all look different so that we'd recognize each other by that look. So it came in real handy, but our body is what allows us to be self-aware. It's what allows me to know that I'm hungry. It's what I know when I'm thirsty. I know when I'm hot. I know when I'm cold because my body is responding to the environment around me. And it's my physical body that allows me to reproduce. So my body is everything physical. My soul is everything mental and emotional. And my spirit accounts for everything spiritual. So we move to the next column. The salvation of each. The salvation of my spirit in the scripture is called justification. I'm not going to read all of these scriptures, but I'm going to read enough of them that we actually get the point. I don't want it just to be me saying it. I want you to see it in scripture. So we're going to begin in Romans chapter 3. 
Again, this is justification, the salvation of our spirit. I'm going to begin reading with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified, there's the word, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we understand my justification, the salvation of my spirit comes because of the redemption that was provided by Jesus. We jump down to verse 28 and it says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. There's a point being made by Paul as he writes to the church in Rome that what justifies a man, what gives him standing before God. Just like the day when you took your children to school for the very first day and you enrolled them in school, they now had standing as a student. It gave them the right to come back the next day because they were enrolled. They now fell under the category of a student. By the blood of Jesus, He gave us standing before the Father as a son. He is the one who dealt with my sin. By the blood of Jesus, he dealt with the impurities that were in me so that I could actually have a relationship with the Father again. Now, having the sin dealt with, the sin covered, I can now have a relationship because when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin anymore. He sees the blood that has now covered it. Because the sin is covered, I can have an intimate relationship with him in the Spirit. It's Jesus who purified me. Jesus who made me ready. It was Jesus who established the ability for me to continue in this relationship as a Christian. So we go now to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, let me just begin with verse 22. It says, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone. This is talking about Abraham. It was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. We, it's what gives us standing before God. It's what allows us to be justified and standing as a son. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, specifically connecting our salvation, our justification with what happened through Jesus' life. And then the same chapter, verse 9, is then says, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offenses of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So he's speaking very specifically that at this point, based on one event, based on our accepting Jesus, one time, eight years old, sitting on on my bed in in our bedroom with my mom to my left, I asked Jesus, I put my faith and trust, and belief in Jesus as my Savior. It was on that moment that I was justified. I had standing before the Father now as the Son. My sin dealt with, my sin now covered, so that I could have a relationship with Him. That's what it means 
to, to be justified. That's the salvation of our spirit. Let's move on to the salvation of our soul. This is much more the picture of what happens the following next 12 or 13 or 14 years after you've been signed up as a student. Sanctification is the long process of being saved. It's the long process of being a student. Yes, you have standing and you get to go because your name is written there. But but what happens next over the next few years is very much like the sanctification of our lives. So in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 19, it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Notice the verbiage. James is talking here about the decisions that we make as Christians. Those things that we do and those things that we avoid. The decisions that we're making, the choices that we're making, and the emotions that we feel. We know that he's talking specifically about the soul. Again, you don't hear any words in here like what Jesus did by the blood of Jesus. This is very much that long process in the decisions that we make and the emotions that we express in our relationship now that we are believers. Acts chapter 20, verse 32 says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among, among all them which are sanctified. Again, the long process, the decision-making. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. In Paul's opening statements, he says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints with all that in every place call, call upon the name of Jesus our Lord, both theirs and ours. Again, talking about our life following the justification. 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should, should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You get the picture? He started our life by justifying us by the blood of Jesus, and he's saying the sanctification is all the multiple decisions that we make following. It's the life that we choose after we're saved. The last one I'll read from this is, is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 21 says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. There's the long process of being saved. The salvation of the soul. It's where we make decisions every day. It's what we yield to. It's what we honor in those decisions and the emotion that comes out of it. The next piece is the salvation of our physical body. It's called glorification. Just going to share a couple of scriptures there from Romans chapter 8, verse 23. I'll read 17 first, and it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then verse 23 of the same chapter, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. 
that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It's just telling us that there's a day coming when that new body will be given. Okay, the next set of columns is how are we saved? Saved by what? The first column is God's part. We're saved by God's gift. Every one of these are going to read exactly the same. We're saved by God's grace. That means we didn't deserve it. And the complete work in the cross, the empty tomb, and restored light and life by the indwelling spirit. That's what God did for us. He did it by sending Jesus to die and to redeem us. He did it by the fact that Jesus not only died, but that he also came back to life so that we could have life. But he also said, I'm not going to ask you to do it alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he can indwell you so that the Christian life that you're actually going to live will be the evidence of him and not of yourself. Every one of those is the same. Whether it be sanctification, justification, or glorification, it's all done by the complete work of God through Jesus, the empty tomb, and the reality of the Holy Spirit. Now, it does grow a little different in our response. So our response to that salvation of our spirit, justification, even though all of them are the word believe, It's the moment that we accept by faith and believe in Jesus as the provision of grace to establish our standing before God as a son or daughter, as a child of God. It's that acceptance of what Jesus Christ has done. The salvation of our soul, sanctification, is to accept by faith the work of the Holy Spirit as the daily provision. The first was the provision that would establish us as a son This is accepting, our salvation of our soul is accepting the daily provision that allows us to function as a believer. So accept the daily provision of grace to establish your intimacy and his glory. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our sanctification, and and again, these are hard things, and this is, the church gets real stuck here. But we have to get past the cross. And it doesn't diminish the truth, it doesn't diminish Jesus But we have to get past Jesus in some forms and fashions. Jesus came to do what Jesus did. But even Jesus in John 14 says, I'm going away. There's a continuing story. I'm going away and I'm sending the Holy Spirit. So it was Jesus who continued the story. It's Jesus who was saying, I've come for a purpose. And that that purpose can only completely be fulfilled now if I send the Holy Spirit to complete the work. It was Jesus who did it. So we have to embrace, we have to recognize that, yes, it was Jesus who put us right before the Lord. His sin dealt with my sin. It it gave me a standing before God. But God says, I want to send the Holy Spirit. So now the life after that will look exactly like me and not like you. So sanctification is accepting by the work of the Holy Spirit, the daily provision, so that every day I trust him instead of trusting me. Our response to the salvation of our body is to accept by faith the promise, because it hasn't happened yet. I haven't received that new body yet. I just trust that with surety that that promise has been made real. Okay, what secures it? The next column. What secures the salvation of our spirit? 
It's Jesus' blood. That's what secures it. It's Jesus' blood and our acceptance of him and of him as our Savior. But Jesus' blood is our assurance that our spirit has been saved. What makes our soul secure is the righteous acts of faith. Now, it's like, how in the world could that make it secure? If the salvation of our soul hangs on our decisions that we make each day, what will I trust? Where will I put my faith? Who will I listen to? What task will I put these hands to? Will they become his hands, his feet? Will this become his heart? Will this become his mind to think with? Will this become his ears to think with? I get to make that on a daily choice. If I say yes to him, the evidence will be the righteous acts that that come out of that truth. Secured by the righteous acts of faith and the daily acceptance of the Holy Spirit as the provision of that righteousness. It's not just that I take action. I could do that all day and it would mean nothing. It has to be the righteous acts which means I am following the leadership of the Holy Spirit to make them righteous. Now, how do I know this? Because someday I'm going to stand at the Bema seat, and what am I going to be given accounting for? Not the salvation of my spirit, because that's what got me there. I'm going to be standing at the Bema giving account for what I've done in my soul. What I've done, what the choices I've made with my physical body and with the, and with the, the decisions I've made with my mind and with my emotions, that's what I'm going to be accounted for, so I know that it's very much based on my trusting the Holy Spirit every day because when Jesus looks at us, he's not going to want us to say, well, this is all the stuff I've done for you, by the way, Jesus, and I've been doing it for a long time. I've, I'm very committed. I've read my Bible every day, and I, and I, and I share you know, with others, and I'm good, and, I, and I, I love people. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I don't even know you. It's like, my goodness, Jesus, I've done all these things. You know, look at my performance record. Look at my scorecard. Look at everything I've done. I can tell you the part. Why would he tell us the part? Isn't that exactly what he wants? No. When he looks at us, who does he want to see? He wants to see himself. So every day that I choose to let him have these hands to work with, then what these hands do will look like him and not like me. When I let this be his heart to love with, then every day that love will look like him and not like me. I can work real hard for him. It's a whole different story to let him work in me and through me to accomplish what he wants and not what I feel is important. What secures the salvation of our body? It's the promise of redemption sealed in Jesus Christ. And we're going to read that scripture in just a minute. What secures it is the promise that he's made. So here's the unique part. How is it fulfilled? It is the salvation of our spirit, justification, that gives us standing before God as a child of God that leads in in the end to eternal life. And that cannot be tampered with. That cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. And when you look at the scripture that talks about the salvation of our spirit, it will talk about that surety. And we know those scriptures pretty well because we've been standing on them for a long time talking about the certainty of our salvation before the Father. It's because once I'm adopted, I can't be unadopted. There's never going to come a day, no matter how I, if I, even if I break fellowship with him, I can't break the relationship because that would mean that he didn't have the power to keep me as a son or a daughter. I want to assure you, he has the, he has the power because he, when he covered your sin originally, 
that sin is covered. The past sin, the present sin, and the future sin are all covered by the blood of Jesus. Remember, it was a complete work. All sin covered. Does that give me permission to sin, as Paul said? God forbid that I would ever use the grace and the mercy of God as a justification for me to sin because, of that, because I know what he did. I have such a desire to live in accordance with him that I would never use that as an excuse to sin. But I have a certainty because he covered my sin. He can't uncover it. He won't uncover it. He doesn't even see it by the complete work of Jesus Christ that he would never change my standing. He would never uncheck the box and say, unadopted, you're on your own. What would that say about God's heart if he would do that? He certainly wouldn't be a God that we could trust. He would become arbitrary and ambiguous. He would become petty and selfish. There would be so many things that would change in his nature if that box could be erased. So the salvation of our spirit that that gave us the, the standing as a son or a daughter or child of God cannot be erased and creates for us the assurance that once I'm saved, once I've been adopted, that will never be changed, cannot be altered. That is truly good news. Salvation of our soul is an entirely different picture. The salvation of our soul doesn't lead to eternal life. The daily decisions that I make, who I'm going to follow and listen to, and whether it's going to bring honor and glory to God or or honor and glory to me, the outcome of that is not eternal life. That is rewards. And we can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says we're going to give an account on that day at the judgment seat for those things done in our body, whether it be good or bad. We understand we're going to stand there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that our works are going to be examined, whether they be of wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones. When it's put in the fire, those things that will remain will receive a reward appropriate for the life that has just been lived. And I want to tell you, rewards can be taken. We read that in the scripture in several places. When we talk about losing salvation, again, I... When I teach this, and I teach it specifically, I tell people that you can never lose your salvation. And then I turn right around and say, and you can lose your salvation. And both of those statements are absolutely true. You can never lose your salvation, and you can lose your salvation, and both of them are true. One's talking about the spirit, one's talking about the soul. Salvation of the spirit, which leads to eternal life, you can't lose. The salvation of the soul that leads to rewards, you can absolutely lose. Because we read about it place after place. In Luke chapter 19, we, re- we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there is a loss of rewards, not a loss of eternal life. You can lose rewards. The way this actually works, God has predestined a life that you're designed to live according to his will. He wrote it. It's a movie that stars you. He hand wrote it personally about you, about your identity, about your gifts, about your desires. He wrote it all into that story, and part of that, that he gave you, assigned to you, were the rewards that were completely attached to that life. God's not going to wait to the end and decide what you get. God decided the rewards that he would assign to the very life he had given you to, to live out. All those gifts were already appropriated to you before you were ever born. Now, what happens as we live the life? Or don't live it. We either receive that which was appropriated to us, or we lose that which was appropriated to us because we chose not to live according to to his will and his plan and the provision that he attached to it. Everything was given up front. 
The gifts, the talents, the purpose, everything was given up front. Our choice now is how we walk it out and whether we keep those rewards or not. You can absolutely lose rewards. So when you look at the scripture that talks about the losing of our salvation, each one is talking about the salvation of our soul. The fulfillment of our body is a glorified body. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In those passages, it talks very plainly about the old passing away and the restoration and the deliverance to us of a new and a redeemed physical body. Someday, we'll get one. This is the picture of body, soul, and spirit, of the salvation of each, the fulfillment of each, and as we begin to understand it, then we can, as as I'm talking to somebody about what happens to us when we die, how does this story go? What happens to someone when they die? It's real hard to explain if you don't know the difference between body, soul, and spirit. Because what happened to Jesus when he died? It says we're going to have a resurrection like his. What happened to Jesus when he died? Where did his body go? It went to the grave. It went to the tomb. Where did his spirit go? It went to be with the Father because he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Where did his soul go? It went to Hades because he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that word, that's just an English word. In Hebrew, it's the word Sheol. In Greek, it's the word Hades. He went to Hades. He had a purpose. Why would he go there? Because that's where all the Old Testament saints were. Hades is not hell. It's a place of death. Why couldn't they go to heaven immediately? Because their sin had never been paid for. The blood of Jesus hadn't paid the price for their sin yet. So they were in this place waiting. And it says when Jesus went there, he went to preach and teach completion. He told them it's done the propitiation that what has been offered for you is now complete. And he says he took those who were there, he took them captive, and it takes them to the third heaven. His spirit did one thing, his soul did something else, his body did something else. So what do you think happens to us when we die? What happens to our body? It goes to the grave, and we wait for that day of promise. What happens to our soul? He goes back to the Father, because where did Jesus take the souls of those Old Testament saints? To be with the Father. So now our spirit and our soul go to be with the Father. I can explain that now because of this. We don't need our physical body. Again, we will be recognized by something far different in heaven. Someday our physical body will be there. We understand that that day will come later. That's our day of promise. But in heaven right now, it's so strange, because things that I can't quite comprehend, that... My spirit and my soul will be how I'm known. That's how we're actually known now. We recognize each other by our body, but we're known by our soul and by our spirit. So what happens when two people get married if we don't know the difference between body, soul, and spirit? Any two people on the face of the earth can unite two physical bodies. If they want to commit the time and energy, they can connect their soul. What does God do that nobody else can do? He connects their spirit. Why did he do it? Where was the image of God when God created man? It was in Adam. Completely. Because Adam was both male and female. In this separation, when he he makes Eve, he doesn't create her because he couldn't. She was already created. Everything female was already created. He took those things female and he placed them in Eve. How How did he put his image back together? He married them. And they shared a common spirit. So that he could establish an image again now held in two bodies, but following the same spirit. So his image could be restored. 
That's why he protects marriage through the scripture. That's why he's established male and female, because it's the complete picture of his image. Can't explain those things well if you don't understand the unique difference between body, soul, and spirit. Teaching after teaching and after teaching in the scripture hinges on our ability to clearly create the distinction between what our body is, what our soul is, and what our spirit is. This kind of teaching makes staying challenging. Because if you lined up 100 believers, Christians, out of random churches, people who have even heard of this would be less than 10. I promise you that it would be that few. You can draw a lot. This, this piece right here would help you solve many things to know that I can actually have a conversation with God and he wants to talk to me. I can talk to him and he wants to talk to me. It's not just how I behave. It's not the places I go or that I don't go. It's the fact that I can have an intimate relationship with God. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, that we had an opportunity to go through this. And again, Lord, I know and many know here that this is stuff that we have gone over time after time. But it's so important that in the building of this foundation that we can draw from time and time again, that we have the clarity about this difference. We just ask you, Lord, as it has come out, as we share it, as the scriptures that we look at, Lord, that you would build this understanding deep within us, lay the foundation deep within us so that we could draw from it and teach from it in Jesus' name. Amen.